You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, so get this. This episode of the podcast will be the last one before this year's Tony Awards. The Tony Awards are this Sunday, June 10th at 8 o'clock, 7 p.m. Central. And if you haven't heard, I've got a show that's up for a big award this year. Once in the Silent is up for Best Revival of a Musical. Tune in. Cross your fingers. You may very well see me on that stage. But don't forget to watch the Tonys this Sunday, June 10th, 8 o'clock, 7 p.m. Central. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport, and my guest today is the Tony Award-winning director, director Rebecca Teichman. Perfect. I got that well right. Well done. Bravo. Apparently, lots of people pronounce that name a lot of different ways, so we were debating <laughs> it before we began here. Uh, welcome. Thank so, you. Rebecca won her Tony for her thrilling direction of Indecent on Broadway. Uh, she's a prolific director of plays all over the country and all over the world. Uh, time in the Conways for the Roundabout. She, you've worked at just about every nonprofit in New York City. Almost. Like Lincoln Center, Almost. Playwright, Second right, Stage, yes. you name it. I mean, yeah. La Jolla, Old Globe. Yes. You've yes. been everywhere. I'm old. <laughs> I've been doing this a while. So... Well, you have been doing it a while, so when when did you start directing? When okay, did well, you first just that? let me say it's an honor to be here and to be with you, so thank you. Um, how the hell did this goddamn thing start? I was an act, a terrible actress for a while. Um, I, and I, I loved it. I knew 
that my language, for whatever reason, I don't know that any of us can kind of articulate in a real way why, but my language seemed to just be theater, my vocabulary, how I express myself. So I luckily got pretty lucky right after college and got kind of a large, I mean, it's all relative, but to me, a large role and an acting part. And I, you know, I had to die every night and fall in love and sob. And by the end of it, I was like, that is not my path. It was so clear. So I was lucky in a way that, that, you know, I was, I got that so fast. Um, and then I started to do, I just was like trying to figure out, well, what area of theater is my home? So I was in, I did casting for a while, dramaturgy, it was like a literary intern, and eventually, eventually started directing and assistant directing and then directing my own, in my own stuff. And then I realized, first of all, it was what I was best at. And it's where I felt most alive and comfortable and excited and challenged. So once that was really clear, then I went back to grad school. Did you have a mentor when you started assisting directing? Anyone that you looked up to that helped you come to this realization? Hmm. There, I was sort of doing these weird, it's a great question, um, uh, I was straddling some like really opposite worlds. So I was, this is right before going to grad school. I was assisting Jean Sachs on Barrymore. That was Christopher Plummer's solo show. Oh yeah, so, I, I working for Livent at the time. I yes, Livent, Livent, <laughs> really. Yes. Well, I was a child on that show, um, and so that was. You know, I was watching Jean and learn. I mean, basically, I was just hanging out with them and learning from them, really. And then simultaneously developing this show called Menopausal Gentlemen, like way at downtown, kind of amazing queer theater piece by this company, Split Bridges, um, really Peggy Shaw from Split Bridges, Perf- you know, writing it and performing it. We were kind of making it together. Um, so they were like really different parts of the spectrum of theater. And I guess, you know, like all of those people were kind of involved. It was right then that I was deciding to go to grad school that were really helpful to me thinking it through. What was the biggest takeaway you got from grad school that impacted your career or the biggest asset you got from it? Well, first of all, weirdly, I mean, in a very literal way, uh, the idea that is the seed of indecent started as a grad student, which really? is strange. Tell us that story. <laughs> it's really weird uh, considering how long ago that was. But when I was in my first year of grad school, we had to do what was called a drama 50 at Yale, where you direct one hour piece. And at that time, it was up to the directors to propose an idea of a play. And I was reading a book at at that moment by Elisa Solomon called Redressing the Canon. And in it, it mentioned this play, The God of Vengeance, which is what Indecent really is about. And that that it had opened on Broadway in the 20s and that there was an obscenity trial. And I was surprised I hadn't heard of it. So sort of started to do more research about it 
and was working with this amazing dramaturg, Rebecca Rugg. We were looked at each other and sort of thought, I wonder if we could find that obscenity trial transcript. That would just be interesting. And we called the law library and they were like, come on down. We got it. You know, it was, and it turned out literally everything to do with that play was housed at the Yale libraries, the history of the play. So Sholomash, who wrote the play, his papers were all there. Harry Weinberger, who produced it on Broadway and then also defended it in court, his papers were there. It was just sort of wild. I sort of felt like I had dropped into this memory, this extraordinary memory. So we set about trying to make a piece out of the found materials, the transcript of the trial interwoven with the text of the play, as my drama 50. And it was called The People Versus the God of Vengeance. <laughs> which is what the trial was called. Um, and I did that. I worked on that through my three years as a graduate student. So my thesis was a version. And it was very clear, I think, that the story was a very important and moving one and that I couldn't write it, no matter how hard I tried, um, that that just wasn't my gift. So after that, I spent a lot of time, first of all, trying to find a theater that would be kind of crazy enough to think this was a good idea and interested in commissioning a writer with me. And then once that happened, finding Paula, you know, and Paula saying yes. So it just was like, it was a, I kind of felt, I guess, that I had, I had to caretake this memory and find a way to tell the story because I had lived um, in sort of the the actual papers, you know, sort of somehow different, like the handwritten everything. I felt like I knew them. And so so that was a literal, you know, <laughs> very concrete gift from my time there. What, let me ask you, this is twice now in your very early career where you've been very objective about your own skills and right. talent in a certain area, which I think is very important because I think a lot of people right. bang their heads at something mm -hmm. that they may mm -hmm. not be good enough at in right. order to achieve the type of success that they want to achieve. What do you think gave you that objectivity? To Because I'm sure you didn't have people saying... You suck at this. Don't do this. Right. We're all really good at congratulating each other. Exactly. Even <laughs> Especially in this business. Yes, no, totally. Every reading I've ever been to, it's the next Pulitzer Prize winning show. Exactable. Uh, um, so what do you think gave you that gift to see both your skills as an actor and as a writer that, not that you weren't good, but that someone might be able to yeah, do it Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a generous way of seeing it. I mean, I think I was enough aware as an actress that I didn't actually enjoy once I got the thing, you know, that I, I actually didn't like, like I remember the director always said a heroine has to have good posture. And I was like, I'm just not that interested in thinking that much about my posture. I just couldn't or vocal work or, you know, and I basically wanted to guide the room and he was like, shut up. So it was, just that was clear. It was like kind of counterintuitive. And then it's many years later, really, that like I get my mother to admit that I was terrible, you know. Um, but I think I, it was as much just for me about realizing 
I didn't love it. With the writing, that was humbling because I really, it was a story I really wanted to tell. It was amazing, complex, and I could, I just, you know, I'm a, I can, I know I'm a great dramaturg and a great editor and, uh, you know, even conceptually sort of conceiving of ideas. But with, you know, I think one of the gifts of a director is collaboration. And I think, and writers have this extraordinary ability to kind of work alone. And I just like kept hitting my own wall. And I knew, you know, I knew enough to read it and be like, that's just terrible writing. You know, like that doesn't come close to the complexity of the idea. So, which meant that I kept sort of, it kept being hemmed in by using the found text, which it turned out the trial on stage, sometimes can a trial on stage can work, but this trial, which I thought would work, just didn't quite work. Um, and, you know, I mean, we did it, and it wasn't like anybody was saying to me, come, let's move this to, you know, it wasn't, it was clearly an idea that was going to have no life unless I found a, I was able to find somebody, a partner, could find a better way to express the story, a more powerful, meaningful way. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was not like, I, I struggled because I really wanted, as a director, it would be great, you know, because you can, just create your own material would be a really nice thing to be able to have the option to do. Not me. <laughs> so when you read other people's work now and you do a lot of new stuff, yeah. what, it's a two-parter really, what makes a great play a great play? And what makes a, what makes a play a play that you want to direct? I want to ask you the same question. <laughs> I'm not answering. <laughs> um... Uh, I think for me, the main thing is, does it move me like really deeply move me, you know? And I guess I hope I want to believe that we're telling stories that move people and open them that create empathy and, you know, that create a kind of ability to see from a different perspective in a way that's deeply moving so that's like, it's just fundamentally, am I, you know, does it move, actually just move me? Um, and if it does, then I usually believe I can kind of find my way through. You know, I can find a, a way in. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's so subjective what makes a great play. I think so many different, there's so many different kinds of plays um, so I would hesitate to sort of overdefine that, but I can just say so there's something about, you know, a person who, a writer who really understands um, rhythm and music and the kind of can get inside. And this to me is really so impressive when somebody can truly find the voices of other people, deeply find them. Um and I guess I find it exciting when there's a theatrical, you know, something that makes it only a story you could tell on stage for me. Those would have been my answers. 
I could have guessed given your what you've done. What's your process when you start working on a new play? So you say you're going to do it. Okay. Script is on your desk. What's the first thing you do? Uh, um, Freak out. Yeah, right. Procrastinate. <laughs> um, well, I'm trying to think of really a true the truth. I I think I do read a piece over and over and over and over again, and kind of if there are other materials that are associated with it in any way, kind of try to immerse in the world of it and its DNA, like understand its structure or its what's kind of making what's it, what are its bones and. Um, and usually if it's a new play and, you know, the writer is willing, just ask them tons of questions. Um, and then, you know, often also provocative questions that, you know, might lead to developing the piece. But, uh, it's usually, I think sort of ideas start to come for me visually for whatever reason, I don't know. And they, but they don't come unless I really know the piece. And I think that is because I'm like a fool for story. I get, I don't like staging a curtain call to me. is like, what is going on? I have no idea. There's no story. Like, what am I doing? You know, I'm always like, who wants to stage the curtain call? Um, but a, as long as, as when I'm fought tracing a story and really, you know, moved by that story and want to release that story in the most exciting, moving, theatrical way I can think of that's a beautiful goal to me and it starts to become as once I really deeply understand the story then sort of impulses start to just happen if that makes sense and what about on that first day of rehearsal what do you do when you start to get in the room with the actors you know it's a I think it's a weird it's a little weird that first day because you as a design team and the writer, you know, and the producers, you've all been sort of working on this for a big chunk of time. And then the people whose bodies are actually going to live the experience are entering it fresh. And so there's this like odd disconnect. I always feel very weird presenting a design. Like, shouldn't we have figured this out all? You know, shouldn't you guys have participated in some measure and kind of just, I don't know. It's an odd... I always find that day kind of bizarre um, on that level, that I know we're about to embark on this deep collaboration, and yet so much has already happened. So, um, you know, I, I do... There are some directors who I know really, and I find this fascinating, kind of really screw with that first day tradition where, like, they'll just assign different people different roles in what they're doing. You know, or like, I don't know, just throw it up in the air because usually that first reading can just be people are so nervous. It's sort of out of body, you know, but I, I find that first reading incredibly helpful. And I just usually say to the actors, if you possibly can take the pressure completely off and wherever you are right now is the perfect place to be. And just to be honest, you know, just be present with, with where you, wherever you're at. And I just learn a lot. I kind of, and I kind of need it. Um, and then I love to just have a conversation where I hear what they're thinking. Like, did, you know, did, what do you think about the 
design? What do you think about what, what was it feel like to read the play? What are your questions and kind of learn from them, hear what their instincts are, their challenges are, or, you know, what excites them. Um, that's sort of usually that weird day one. And in this collaborative role of a director that you wanted to be in, do you have to, you find yourself having to negotiate between actor and writer a bit? Like, how is that process? Like, specifically on Indecent, how much of an impact did the actors have on that show from first day of rehearsal till first preview in terms of some of the text? Well, the, that was such a unique process in every way. And those, that amazing company of actors worked on the piece for years, two years. We did it at Yale, then we did it at La Jolla, then we did it at the Vineyard, then it moved to the court. So it was a long process. Um, and I would say, you know, what's so useful is questions when an actor says, like, I, I can't quite figure this out or this isn't making sense to me. Um, so it's not prescriptive, but you know, something's, something's not there. Um, and they, in terms of the creation of the physical life of that piece, that was a family that made that, you know, and I think that's why you feel their hearts in it so deeply. It was, and you can only really do that with time. We had time. Not the first pass. The first pass at Yale, when I went back and saw it again, I was like, oh my God, these scenes are terribly staged, like terrible staging. Because I just hadn't had, it was such a huge conceptual thing to understand, like, what even is it? Now, I certainly hadn't seen anything quite like it before. So just trying to get my arms kind of around the big, huge scale of like, what is the structure? How, what, how does music relate to text? You know, what's the, how are we, it, there were some things that became really clear, really fast, like anything, any sentimental choice, just this place spit it right out. I was like, no. <laughs> um, but it was a real, it was a very profound, very deep collaboration, really every step of that way with everybody that worked on it. Um, and the, the actors gave me ideas, you know, questioned staging impulses. They were just, I love them all so much, you know, and feel very, very close to all of them. Paula also, because she has done this and thought so much because she teach, you know, is an extraordinary teacher of playwriting. She's thought a lot about being a playwright in a rehearsal room. And she just knows how to create a sense of community and family. One way she does it is she brings food, you know, like really like meals. Um, and that just like means people hang out and eat and, you know, break bread together. And it's small, but actually huge in its way. Um, and just her, the generosity of her spirit and the love she has of actors, like a real love, um, I think opened everybody up. And what do you look for from actors when they walk in the 
audition room for the first time? It's interesting. I guess I might say the same thing I look for from a play, which is to be moved. You know, like I'm just, I'm like, move me. <laughs> Can you move me? Move me. I just want to be moved. Um, that is really the truth. You know, I figure in a way it's like being, you You do want to think a little bit like a, or yeah, like an audience member, you know, does somebody, can somebody open you up and make you feel something, laugh or, you know, really, that's the first thing. And if, when that happens, it's so thrilling and then... You know, there's a question of can we collaborate? Like, do our does my 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 way of talking make sense to this person or thinking and repetition? Like, is it possible to come in and I don't know? That's a craft that's so awes me the ability to really repeat and make something feel totally fresh and alive. You know, can somebody do that after they've if you've come in and kind of like can you do it again? You know. But the first thing is just a lot of real longing to be moved. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a, a bit about the business yes. of being a director on Broadway or in the commercial or nonprofit arena. Yeah. And we'll talk pre-Tony and we'll talk post-Tony. Okay. <laughs> PT and PT. <laughs> How much of your time do you... Or did you have to think about trying to market yourself as a director and get your name out there and network and do all that stuff uh, before the Tony? Did you really have to try to sell yourself? I mean, yeah. You know, it shifted over the years, how and in what ways. and But it's rough. It's hard. It's a hard business to break into. I will. I do think it's harder as a woman, as a woman director. I think that, and going back to when I began, it was harder than it is now to, you know, get people to have that, take that leap of faith on you. Um, so it, it was, a, you know, the skills don't necessarily align, like the skill to market oneself and one's work and the ability to do the work. Um so it was not like that that was so intuitive or easy to me, but um I did realize that I had to be creative and smart and strategic, you know, as best I could be. I mean some some of it's in the dark, you really don't know if you're making the right choice or not the right choice or you know. Um there was a lot of for a long time a lot of knocking on doors and you know, pitching my wares. I used to walk around with a big, huge portfolio that had, like, pictures of my shows. <laughs> and that was a really... Actually, it was a great way. It was a great way as a young director to tell a story of just what I've done and how I think. Um, I did that a lot. Really? Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning, you know. I think it's hard. I A lot of young directors now ask me, you know, how do you break in? It's like... How do you, I mean, how do you get, if you haven't had a kind of a somewhat large scale show where there's a budget and somebody else producing it who isn't you, how do you get that person to kind of, if they've never seen your work, to say you're the one, you know, it's like, it's a hard, that you have to kind of push that door down 
sometimes I felt like I didn't have the key to the gate and I couldn't figure out how to open the gate. And, um, and I also had to make my living. Like I didn't, I didn't have the ability to kind of stay in New York and do a lot of workshops and readings and not really earn money. I just, I had to earn my keep. So that led to, you know, a lot of trying to figure out how to do that. A lot of regional jobs, which were great. I mean, and I, you know, I learned so, so much and was a way to make an income. Um, but it was, it's not been easy. I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked anybody before. Oh my before. God, I'm scared. And I think it's a question that, you know, a lot of actors have to deal with, but something that directors don't, probably don't talk about as much. Right. You have to make a living. I mean, everybody has to make a living. We have rent to pay. We yeah. have bills to pay. And you have to take jobs in order to do that. Right. And I think we, we know that actors sometimes take jobs that they may not necessarily right. want to take. Have you ever taken a job that you've been like, you know what? I really don't want, this isn't my ideal job right now, but I got to take it. I assume something. I think that, um, okay, so one flaw, and maybe you could perceive it also as like a great quality, but is I just, as much as I needed to, I could never, ever make a choice, a big choice based on purely on money. Um, it's just like not in my nature. So, and it was also not the values I was like taught from in my upbringing. Um, so I think the way that I negotiate, I myself negotiated that was not about doing pieces that I didn't care about, but it was about a ton of travel. Um, and at a certain point becoming so tired from traveling that I knew it wasn't a good idea emotionally, physically to keep traveling, but I needed to. So that I think is where I did kind of, and because I was scared financially not to, and really the truth is it was my agent who's Mark Subias who said to me, when I first started working with him, you're not taking anything, any, anything as regional, nothing. And I was like, how <laughs> what's that and he was like nothing i'm not you know we're just gonna say no you can't if you ever want to not if you need to stop traveling you have to make space and time and he really pushed me it was very 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 smart um and scary it was like financially it was scary you know will something take that will something fill that vacuum that's a while ago now but boy he was right you know strategically he was right I don't know if I had done it much earlier if it would have worked. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> so let's get back to this question, which you started to uh, dive into, is just being, you're, you're part of this group of growing now female directors yeah. and successful ones. But talk a little bit more about your, was it obvious that there were, you weren't getting a, the right, looks for possible gigs mm -hmm. when you started out because you were a woman? I do think, I mean, you know, you just can't deny numbers. Like there's just facts. The facts alone tell a pretty big story that there's an inequity 
and it's extreme. And it, you know, gender-wise, and also if you look at people of directors of color, also like it's just a, there's a really clear factual inequity that we all have to figure out how to, I believe, you know, shift the balance. Um, and I do think when I was starting out that, uh, it was just, it was in just in a very like intuitive, unconscious way. It was a little harder to kind of take a leap on, especially a young woman, you know, on a young woman, um, at that time. And I think it's true that the pool is growing. Thank God. You know, it's very exciting. And, you know, when I walked off that stage at the Tony Awards and realized I was the sixth woman, it was pretty hard. I was like, wow, you know, something's wrong. And we have to like really work consciously and effortfully to shift that. And I, you know, and no woman of color has ever, I don't think, won that award. That's weird, you know? So when we, because you know, we're in this creative field. We want to believe, we think in these open-minded ways. And really, we're all creatures of habit, of course, and comfort. You know, the people we know are the people we want to work with. Um, makes total sense. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good moment where I think people are looking more consciously at those choices and and being sort of challenged to think more about you know, take a, what if you took this other path? What would that look like? Might it be really exciting, if unknown? Yeah, it's, uh, we're not only trained to work with people that we worked with before, but also people that we're like. Yeah, You know, right. it just Absolutely. makes sense. Totally. That, because these are the people we know, we see, we hang out with, that yep. are more like us, quote unquote, that we have to challenge ourselves to them. No, would it actually provide better art if we get someone totally different from yes. ourselves for a totally different perspective. I think that's so, I mean, it's really beautifully put and it's very true, you know, and it, and it's, a, it's, it's a cycle that's very, very hard to break because comfort, especially if you're talking about something with a lot of money and a lot of risk, you know, you want to feel like you're in the best possible position and, um, and sometimes that leads to like a real aversion to risk, especially with the director, like the captain of the ship. But that person, because they're guiding so many choices, you know, they're participating with the producer, making so many of the hiring choices affect so much down the line, you know, that if you can start by like, oh, yeah, get out of my comfort zone, what would happen? Might it be really, really thrilling, you know, and might it create something unexpected and new that would, you know, go beyond what we all know or what we're used to. What do you think about the current state of playwriting in this country right now? How do you think the stuff that's coming out looks? Are we in good shape? Give it a grade. Oh, uh, well, it's so different in different arenas, I think. So new plays on Broadway are struggling. Just new writers. New writers. The new writers that you're reading. Like, are you excited about them? Yeah, I think that um, there are extraordinary writers, uh, young voices. I mean, I'm sometimes I feel like 
Similarly, like to what I'm saying about a producer hiring a director they don't know, it's exciting for me at this point to I work I've, like these deep collaborations with a few writers that are, I treasure, and there's nothing like it. And you know, so many exciting young writers around who teach me so much, you know, and bring new ideas into my world too. It's pretty thrilling. Um, so I th I just think it it's. It's the same kind of problem of opportunity and inequity there. The voices that rise, um, I just hope that we can be lifting up a more diverse pool of voices. If you could get all the new, young, emerging writers in a room and could give them one piece of advice about their writing that you think is missing... What, what would it be? Or the biggest mistake you see that young writers or emerging writers make today? Or the one lesson? I think just authenticity to their truth and not feeling like you have to try to make something for somebody else. You know, that probably the greatest art is the most honest and the most vulnerable or, you know, real and to just trust that that's enough. Not that it has to be a piece about you, but that, that it's not, you're not working to be clever. You know, you're working to be honest. Okay, my last question. Okay. My genie question. Yeah. Which I want oh. you to imagine. Oh, no. Genie. It's a genie. Why does everyone get scared of the genie? I don't know, because then you're like forced to make a choice about a wish. Yes, And you, exactly there's, you know, you have too many wishes. You the... fear making one would negate another. <laughs> The genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and offers you one wish. What's the one thing that frustrates you about Broadway or about the theater in general that makes you mad, angry, that could have you flipping up this table right now that you'd ask this genie to wish away? Oh, the truth right now. Right now. Is... It, my one wish would would be more about our government. I mean, that's just the truth. That I'm terrified of what's happening in this country, and like deeply afraid, and worried, and shocked by it. And I would probably have to use <laughs> my one wish on, you know, democracy, like surviving what feels like a pretty big threat and not succumbing to kind of divisive, really hate-driven um, rhetoric that's like, just feels like it, it will, it could, and it, if it, if it keeps growing, could affect everything and everyone in this country in a way I never would have dreamed so I think that might be that, if I was rubbing on that. <laughs> so Roseanne Barr should not audition for <laughs> you, is what I don't think she and I would have the best connection. Uh, a, a very, very good and timely answer. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, uh, all of you out there, for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you, Ken. Don't forget to watch the Tony Awards. Tune in this Sunday night, June 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. Let's try to drive those ratings up, everybody. Tune in.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.